Praise Him, praise Him, Jesus our blessed Redeemer. Sing, O earth, His wonderful love proclaim. Hail Him, hail Him, highest archangels in glory. for joining us for worship today at First Baptist Church of Wixom. Here are a few upcoming events to help you stay connected. Plan now to join us for our annual Resurrection Day Easter services. A sunrise worship gathering is planned for 7 a.m., breakfast at 9 a.m., and a morning worship at 10 a.m. There are our invite cards for you to use in the link. Start inviting friends and neighbors now for this great time as we worship our risen Savior. We will be having a children's worker meeting on Thursday, April 13th at 7 p.m. Those involved or interested in ministries that interact with children are required to attend. This includes teen ministry. Please see Johnny Martin with any questions. Community groups meet tonight at 6 p.m. If you are not yet connected with the Sunday p.m. community group, please visit fbcwixom.org forward slash community groups for more information. Community groups meet most Sunday nights at 6 p.m. All FBC attenders are encouraged to sign up for one-on-one discipleship. Books and information are available in the link. There will be a young adult teaching night on Tuesday, April 4th at 7 p.m. Eric Jacobs will be providing some practical and biblical tips on handling finances. Please see Bradley Tice with any questions. In just a few minutes, we'll be dismissing children four years through the third grade out the back of the auditorium to our junior church ministry. 
While there, they will enjoy a great time as they sing songs, play games, and hear a message from God's Word prepared just for them. Giving is one of the many ways we have to worship the Lord. If you'd like to give financially, you can utilize the giving box in the back of the auditorium, or you can give online at fbcwixom.org and click on the tab at the top of the page. If this is your first time at FBC, we would love to connect with you. If you'd like more info about FBC, prayer, or to learn how you can get involved, you can fill out a connections card online at fbcwixom.org forward slash connect. Also, make sure to stop by the Welcome Center for a special gift on your way out after the service. Once again, thank you for joining us for worship today. Now, we invite you to worship the Lord through song as we prepare to hear from God's Word this morning. Good morning, church. Uh, A warm welcome to you if you're a guest. A special word of welcome to you this morning. Uh, I just have two brief announcements this morning pertaining to Sunday school over the next couple of Sundays. Uh, First of all, next week we are going to have a very special guest with us. We will have Dr. Steve Pettit, who is the president of Bob Jones University. He is going to be with us next Sunday morning. Uh, And in conjunction with that, he'll be preaching or morning service. And he will also be teaching a combined Sunday school here in the auditorium. So there will only be one Sunday school class next week, and that's going to be here in the auditorium at 9.45. The second announcement pertaining to Sunday school is a couple of weeks out, and that will be on the 16th of April. So that's the week after Easter. We're going to begin a new eight-week course looking at the subject of biblical counseling. Now, as a little bit of a taster on what to expect in that class, what we're going to look at is we're going to study what is biblical counseling, why is biblical counseling different to secular psychology and other things like that, and we're going to see that how, how we can use our Bibles, deal with sin, how we can deal with suffering, and how we can use the scriptures to encourage others to walk closer to Christ and deal with with the problems and issues that they face in life. Now, you might say, well, I don't want to be a counselor, so why do I need that class? Well, I would encourage you that each of us interact with one another. We have perhaps discipleship relationships as well. And being better equipped in using God's words to help one another with the struggles that we face in our life is a helpful thing. So I would encourage you to plan to join us, and that will start on the 16th of April at 9.45 in the cafe. Please plan to join us for both those Sunday school classes over the next couple of weeks, and uh, let's pray as we start our service this morning. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you this morning. Lord, we're thankful that we can gather in your house on another Sunday. And Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. Lord, we pray even this morning as we come to your word, as we come to your holy scriptures, Lord, that you would speak to us afresh, that your spirit would work, and that you would uh, direct us and point us to points in our lives where we need to change to become more like you. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning. Uh, Be with Holden as he preaches to us. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing in worship this morning, I want to emphasize the fact that we serve a great and a mighty God. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing it out. Glorious and mighty. 
brighter than the moon and the stars. Marvel me, we honor and fear you above all gods. Glorious and mighty, you're awesome in us as we try to trust and depend on God every single day is to have a healthy and biblical view of who he is. The fact that, as we just sung, glorious and mighty, he is worthy of our trust. He is our faithful God, and he deserves all praise. Let's sing this out together. Serve the King who left me. 
your mercies will be unchanged. And when the storms swirl and rage, there are mercies and in affliction and pain, you will carry me through. I will sing of your mercies. I will sing of your mercies Is anybody in here a fan of lightning and thunder? Like watching it? Like seeing it? Okay, how about the reverse? Anybody in here not so much of a fan of lightning or thunder? Okay, also many who feel that way. My wife first among them, I assure you. Now, lightning and thunder is both powerful and fascinating, but it's also admittedly scary, especially if, for example, you are in a place where you are vulnerable to it. Now, that realization is not unique to us. In fact, a recognition by humans that lightning and thunder that accompanies it are impressive and powerful basically goes back to our earliest times. In fact, it even factors into some of the most famous mythological figures that you probably are aware of. These three figures on screen, you know all three of them. One of them is Zeus, of course. He's the largest of the three. He has lightning bolts in his hand, and he was known to throw them off of his mountain, supposedly. The next is Thor, and his hammer literally created lightning and pealed with thunder when he swung it. The last figure you know, although you probably don't recognize him, and that is actually Baal, of course, often the, uh, the idol of worship for the Israelites and certainly for the Canaanites in the Old Testament. And if you can see, if you have good eyes, you'll notice that he too is holding lightning bolts in his hand. In fact, it's one of the almost constants of human ideas about God is that only God would be powerful enough to create lightning. It's powerful, it's fearsome, and you want to avoid it. Because if you get hit by lightning, it's bad. Now, the interesting thing is the pagans that came up with these gods were totally false. We're on to something because they had one thing right, at least. 
That kind of power is godly. Only God could possibly control that kind of power. Of course, where they got it wrong is who they thought God was. We, on the other hand, know who God is, and indeed, he does control lightning and thunder. In fact, there's two famous biblical stories where this is involved. One of them, you'll have to go with me. I strongly believe it's a lightning reference, but the Bible doesn't say one way or the other. The first is found in 1 Kings 18. This is the famous time where Elijah and the prophets of Baal are having a sacrifice competition to see who is going to, whose God is going to answer. And once you know that Baal is a God of lightning, amongst the other things that he is a God of, that really helps us put this story in context. The 450 prophets of Baal are dancing around their altar and they cannot get Baal to respond because, of course, Baal is a false God. He's not real. And Elijah makes fun of them for this. And then, in human terms, he actually makes his sacrifice more challenging. He douses it with water. He digs a trench and fills that with water. And yet God responds. The text says that fire falls from above and consumes everything. But the wording in Hebrew is imprecise. There definitely was something that came out of heaven that was superheated and hot. But whether this was fire, as in a column of fire or a lightning bolt, I'll leave up to you. Especially considering who God was showing was completely inconsequential, I tend to think that was a lightning bolt. But that's not the only time that God demonstrated his power over lightning. Jesus also did this. And we find this in Matthew chapter 8, specifically verses 23 through 27. You're familiar with the story. Jesus is sleeping in the boat as the disciples attempt to cross the Sea of Galilee. And on their way, they are caught in a fearsome storm and they despair. They think they are going to die. And finally, they wake Jesus up and Jesus, with a simple word, controls the storm. He puts it completely to peace the waves, the wind, the lightning, and this leads the disciples to exclaim, what manner of man is this? So again, the pagans had something right. Only God could control the power of something like lightning. Only God is powerful enough to do that. They erred in who they thought that God was. Our God, the God that we're going to look at today from Psalm 76, is that God. That God who controls lightning and many other things, and who is worthy of worship because of that. Psalm 76, verses 7 through 9 say this, although we will look at the entire chapter. Thou, even thou, talking about God, are to be feared. And who may stand in thy sight when once thou art angry? Thou didst cause judgment to be heard from heaven, a reference to thunder. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to judgment... To save all the meek of the earth. Selah. Let's pray. Lord, help us today as we think about your majesty, your fearsome nature. Lord, help us today as we seek to understand what it means to fear you in a biblical way. What that should motivate us to do. How we should praise you for that. Lord, help us to understand these things today as we dig into your word. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. I've titled today's message, God is Fearsome. And I think that title probably deserves some explanation. And in fact, we're going to spend the entire first part of this sermon digging into what this means. Because God is fearsome can easily be taken 
two different directions that are both incorrect. It can be taken to two extremes that don't reflect what really I mean by this and what I think Scripture teaches in this psalm. It's possible to overemphasize the fearsome nature of God, to think of him only as an unstoppable punisher who is intent on destruction. And unfortunately, there are people in society that view God this way and warn others that God is like this. That is an extreme, and it's a bad way to look at this concept, even if there's a kernel of truth to it. On the other side, there are those who completely ignore God's fearsome nature and instead choose to focus on his mercy, his love, his compassion, his kindness. And God is all of those things, absolutely, and we'll talk about them, but we have to hold those things while also understanding that God is fearsome. We can't hold one and not the other. The Bible teaches both, and so we have to have a view of God that brings those things together because he is both. He is all those things at once. He's fearsome and kind, and so we have to understand that. We also need to ask this question that's on screen right now. What does it mean to fear God? Because this is one of these areas where it is very easy for us as modern Christians who live in the 21st century to misunderstand what the Bible means when it uses the word fear. Because in the Bible, to fear God means something a little bit different than what we assume the word fear means. So to start today's message, before we even get into the text, I want to answer this question. What does it mean to fear God? What does fear mean in the Bible, in a biblical context? Now, there are times when the word fear in the Bible means exactly what we would naturally assume it does. People are afraid. They're scared. But when the Bible talks about fearing God, it's not necessarily talking about being scared of God. When I hear the word fear, and this is probably true for many of us, I think of things that are scary. For example, monsters, okay? If you've ever seen Monsters, Inc., right? They are there to scare. They cause fear, at least at the beginning of the movie. Fear might happen in an unpredictable situation. If you've ever walked over an unstable bridge over a high area or a river below, it can create fear because it's unpredictable what's going to happen. Many animals can cause fear because they're unpredictable. They're not inherently dangerous. We don't have a lot of inherently dangerous animals here in Wixom, Michigan. However, an unpredictable animal can cause fear. Finally, surprise can cause fear. And I can tell you that because I am the chief person who fears surprise. Uh, If there is a jump scare in a movie, I am going through the roof. Okay. And by the way, it doesn't even matter if I know the jump scare is coming. I've seen Jurassic Park probably a dozen times. I still jump every time the dinosaurs show up and ask my wife. It's totally true. I always jump. But none of these things is really what the Bible means when it says fear God. We're not fearing God because he's unpredictable. He's certainly not that. He's not a surprise either. In fact, he's told us what we need to know about him in his word. So that's not fear. God is, I suppose, scary because he's powerful, but again, that's really not what the Bible means here. Instead, the Bible, when it talks about fear, requires us to think about what the original hearers of this would have thought of, what the Hebrews for the Psalms and what the Greeks and the Hebrews for the New Testament thought when they heard the word fear. Really, the word fear, when it's used, fear of God is actually closer to another concept that you're familiar with, but it has a negative connotation in our minds. And that's actually the idea of superstition. 
Okay, superstition, normally when we think about it, is irrational behavior to avoid bad circumstances. But that's actually not what the word means. The word actually means a specific action taken to please someone or a specific action avoided to please someone. Let me illustrate, okay? I'm not talking about superstitions like don't walk underneath a open ladder or jump on a crack and break your mother's back. Those are superstitions. But superstition really back in the time of the disciples and the time of the Hebrews was different. In fact, many of these superstitions are still around and they might surprise you. Many of them are actually connected to things like our marriages. For example, let me give you a silly one first. Did anyone in here carry their bride over the threshold or themselves were carried over the threshold? Anybody? Okay, I did. I carried my wife over the threshold the first time, okay? Which was easy because she's really small and light and I'm not so much. So anyway, uh, the point is that this is actually superstition. The Romans believed that if a woman tripped on her way into a house, that entire household was permanently cursed with bad luck. But for whatever reason, the god of the doorway wasn't offended if men tripped. So guys, if you trip on your way into the house, you are totally good. But if the ladies trip, for some reason, that is bad news. So Romans came up with the idea of carrying the bride over the threshold, not for romantic reasons, not because they loved their wife or wanted to protect her. Nope, it was to avoid bad luck. They had to carry her, otherwise they were risking things. Our wedding rings, in fact, are also part of superstition. These also go back to Roman times. And actually, these things supposedly bind you to the earth. You cannot be stolen away by the many spirits that inhabit Greek and Roman mythology. So that's what your wedding ring's for. And so married people can't be stolen away. And that's why both of you wear it. Now, of course, later on, Christian theologians and pastors saw the beauty of unity in a ring. So I'm not suggesting you take your wedding rings off and chuck them away. Okay. I think they can be a beautiful picture of God's view of marriage, but they didn't start out as that. They're actually superstitious objects to protect people from bad results. Now, this is really what biblical fear is. It is doing the right thing and avoiding the wrong things to please God. That's what it is. And that's what superstition and its original meaning is as well. So when the Bible tells us to fear God, that's what it's talking about. Now, again, the Romans and everyone who was superstitious did these things because they believed there was a real, physical, bad outcome that they were trying to avoid. There was real results for not doing these things. And that is an important part of fear in the Bible. It's not scared quaking in your boots, but it is a recognition that God is who he says he is. And if I don't do the right things, that there's going to be consequences. So God's not going to go off the handle. He's not unpredictable, but he is incredibly powerful. He's literally an unstoppable force and you don't want to get in his way. And by the way, the Bible is full of examples of what God can do when he decides to be fearsome and to judge. For example, the flood, he destroyed all of humanity but eight people. The plagues of Egypt, he unleashed devastating effects on the Egyptians and, of course, protected his people. Sennacherib's army in 2 Kings chapter 18 destroyed overnight by a plague 250,000 people. God is incredibly powerful and you do not want what God can do to you in his fearsome nature. Now, I'm going to say this multiple times today. Just because God is fearsome 
does not mean that we ignore all of his good characteristics, like I already said in the introduction. God is also merciful, compassionate, loving, kind. He is not up there looking to smite all of humanity. He could, certainly, but we know throughout Scripture that he does not desire this. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 is perhaps one of the best examples of this. This is what it says. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. God could consume us, but he's merciful and he doesn't because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Psalm 86 reminds us that God is full of compassion. Romans 5.8 tells us that God loved us long before we loved him. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I'm going to talk a lot about God's fearsomeness. And that's what the psalmist is focused on. But don't forget these things. Again, we don't want to end up on either extreme. We don't want to think God is only fearsome. We don't want to think God is only these things. He's both. And we have to hold all of these things together. Otherwise, we're really not seeing God the way we should. Now, fear in the Bible is really a healthy fear. It means that we need to respect and revere God, treat him the way that he deserves to be treated. And that brings us back to lightning. If you think about lightning, lightning is very dangerous. It can kill you, and people die every year from lightning strikes. However, we also are very safe when it comes to lightning. In fact, you're even safe from lightning strikes in airplanes. Not that I want to scare you with those statistics, but let's just say that because of modern technology, you can be very safe from lightning, even if it is very dangerous and very powerful. A proper fear of God protects you from God's wrath, and it's a crucial part of our Christian walk. But let's dig into our text. Now we're going to look at every verse in Psalm 76 and ask two questions. Number one, why should we fear God? Number two, what should the fear of God result in us doing? So let's go ahead and look at why we should fear God. This is where the psalmist starts in verses one through three. In Judah is God known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem or Jerusalem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There break he the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword and the battle. The psalmist starts with a picture of God as a victorious king, literally sitting in judgment from his throne. In fact, this is actually referencing the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, if we think about what it was designed to be, it was actually designed to be a seat, specifically a seat for God. And in this particular chapter, we get this imagery of God sitting on his throne, destroying his enemies. Verse 3 tells us that God utterly defeats his enemies. He literally takes their iron weapons and he snaps them into pieces because he's that powerful. He destroys them. He wins. He's unstoppable for his people. In fact, the idiom in Hebrew that's translated as arrows of the bow actually literally is fire from the bow. This is actually another Hebrew reference to lightning. Not only is God breaking the weapons of his enemies, but he is destroying them with fire from above. God is unstoppably powerful. But the psalmist isn't done with that. Not only does God defeat his enemies, he's complete master over nature. 
This starts in verse 4 and continues in verse 8. Thou art more glorious and excellent than the mountains full of prey. Here again, the psalmist gives us a way to understand what God's fearsome nature is like. He is like a great mountain. A mountain example I'll give you today is Mount McKinley or Denali. It it carries both names. This is the tallest mountain in North America. You might know from my previous messages, I like mountains a lot. However, mountains are great representations of the kind of power and the kind of fear God deserves. Because climbing mountains is dangerous. They are things to be respected In fact, if you go and try to climb Mount McKinley without taking the proper preparations, it's incredibly dangerous. It will kill you, and it does kill people on a fairly regular basis if they're not prepared. On the other hand, if it is approached the right way, if it's treated in the right manner and respected and feared, the right actions are taken and the wrong ones avoided, then Mount McKinley is very climbable. Well, except for summiting, that's actually quite challenging. Only about one quarter of people who go to the mountain get to the top. But they don't die. They just have to come back down. The point is that you have to treat the mountain with respect. Otherwise, you're taking your life into your own hands. This is the picture that the psalmist gives us of God in verse 4. But the psalmist continues in verse 8, a verse I already read, but it's worth repeating. Thou didst cause judgment to be heard from the heaven. The earth feared and was still. This is a reference to thunder, judgment from the heaven. God stops his enemies in awe. The psalmist picks this back up in verses 5 through 6. The stout-hearted are spoiled. They have slept their sleep, and none of the men of might have found their hands. At thy rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and the horse are cast into dead sleep. When God reveals his real power, Humans freeze. They stop. They don't know what to do. Now, this is actually a very normal human reaction to fear. When we see something that utterly amazes us and shocks us, we have a tendency to do strange things. And freezing up is one of the classic responses. You may have heard of fight or flight, but there's a third one, there's freeze. We oftentimes see this in really challenging situations. An example of this is Pickett's Charge. If you're familiar with Pickett's Charge, it's perhaps the most famous moment of the Battle of Gettysburg. The Confederacy launched a massive central attack across a mile of open ground at the Union lines. And this is perhaps one of the most horrific events in American history because thousands of these Confederates would be killed in their charge across the field. Something that shocked the Union after the battle is they found Confederate soldiers who had had incredibly strange reactions because of the fear that they felt. For example, they found rifles with seven bullets loaded into them because the men had done their manual of arms. They knew how to load a gun However, they were so afraid they literally couldn't pull the trigger. So they did all the steps of readying their weapon. They pointed it at the enemy and they never fired because they were shocked by the fear of battle. The same thing happens to humans when they see God and he shows his fearsome nature. John 18:6, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is confronted by the Pharisees and their guards, admits who he says. He says... In response to a question of who he is, if he's Jesus, he says, I am he. And this announcement 
is so powerful, it literally blows these guys off their feet and they fall to the ground. That is who God is. He is fearsome. And seeing him and seeing what he can do ought to freeze us. It ought to stop us. And that's what the psalmist is talking about here. This is God's fearsome nature. But the application is not to freeze out of fear. Because again, fear doesn't mean be scared of God. There are people that ought to just be scared of God. Those are his enemies. They get destroyed. And all of these fearsome qualities that the psalmist is describing, that's what applies to them. But those who are followers of God, we still ought to have fear. And the New Testament is full of references to this. But we ought to have a different response. By the way, can I tell you why we don't have to have this fear reaction that God's enemies do? It's, again, because God is compassionate, he's merciful, and he's loving, and he's kind. Romans 6.23 tells us that for the wages of sin is death. That's fearsome. God is going to destroy those who sin. But fortunately, that's not where the verse ends. The verse then continues, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God has wrath, but Jesus took that wrath away. And so as followers of Jesus, we are no longer under wrath, but we still have a responsibility to follow God correctly. Let me give you two verses to illustrate these points. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 reminds us, but he, talking about what Jesus would do in the future, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Jesus took God's fearsome wrath, and he is offering us his righteousness in his protection from God's wrath in his stead. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7.15. And his inward affection is more abundant towards you whilst he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. So Christ has taken the punishment, but there should still be fear of God as we receive Jesus Christ. And that fear is going to motivate us to act correctly. So that gets us to the meat of today's message. We've talked about what fear is. We've talked about why we should fear, something the psalmist spends two-thirds of this psalm on. But let's talk about what fear ought to motivate us to do, the fear of God specifically. The first thing is this. The fear of God ought to motivate obedience. We see this in verse 9. When God arose to judgment... To save all the meek of the earth. That word meek there is probably one of those words that you're familiar with, if you're familiar with the Bible, especially the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. But it's one of those words that sometimes is hard to define. It's hard to remember exactly what it means to be meek. But meekness, perhaps succinctly, is described as humble obedience. It's an attitude of humble obedience. So those who fear God, those who want to avoid God's judgment, humbly obey. Again, Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1 says this, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So Paul says, because we fear God, we are going to get rid of evil and act in the right way. 
In fact, John, in Revelation chapter 11, describes the followers of God this way. Give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, unto the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, in the earth. So, the followers of God, the people who obey him, which is what John was talking about, fear God. So, fear involves obedience. James references this as well in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. But he continues, Thou believest that there is one God, thou dost well. The devils also believe and tremble. He's saying that someone who's a real follower of Jesus obeys Jesus. He doesn't just believe that God is fearsome. His fear of God motivates some action, some obedience on his part. The psalmist actually says this as well in verse 11 of Psalm 76. Not only should we obey, but he says this, Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Let all that be round him bring presents unto him that ought to be feared. So the psalmist says not only do we need to obey in humility, but we need to give gifts to God. Now, in context, this is probably talking about real physical gifts. This is the nation of Israel. They gave sacrifices to God, or they were supposed to, on a regular basis. And I suppose there is an argument here that we can attach to the New Testament concept of giving, in which the Christian community gives to one another and supports one another. We find that concept in 1 Peter 2.17, where Peter is talking about giving not only to the church, but giving to the government and giving to God. But really, this is talking in a Christian context more about the gifts of service, which is really what God expects out of Christians. And again, we have references to fear motivating this in the New Testament. This is what Colossians 3.22 and 23 say. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as man-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. So what we see here is that service, not only to man, but God, is motivated by the fear of God, the desire to do what is right, to avoid bad outcomes, and to avoid what is evil, to avoid bad outcomes. The psalmist also says that fearing God involves thinking about things the way God does. Look at verse 10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. Now this is a strange verse. It requires us to think deeply about what it's saying. The wrath of man will praise God. What does this mean? Well, the wrath of man is actually the part of the image of God. Did you know that? Anger, rightly expressed, is actually something we have inherited from God. Because remember, in Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our own image. That doesn't really mean physical. God, the Father, anyway, has no physical form. He's a spirit. But Romans 1 tells us that we actually have attributes of God. And those psalmist also says that fearing God involves thinking about things the way God does. Look at verse 10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. 
Now, this is a strange verse. It requires us to think deeply about what it's saying. The wrath of man will praise God. What does this mean? Well, the wrath of man is actually the part of the image of God. Did you know that? Anger, rightly expressed, is actually something we have inherited from God. Because remember, in Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our own image. That doesn't really mean physical. God, the Father, anyway, has no physical form. He's a spirit. But Romans 1 tells us that we actually have attributes of God. And those attributes of God mean everyone on earth understands some things about God. This is why we have a universal sense amongst humans of right and wrong. For example, murder is always wrong in every culture, always, because God has given us certain character traits and qualities that are universal because we are his creation. But his anger is also part of our divine nature. In fact, our entire sense of justice, as Romans 1, 19 and 20 point out, come from God. Our entire justice system today actually relies on this. The reason that our justice system can achieve correct results is because it's actually based on God's justice, because we inherited it. We also know this because anger is something that Jesus demonstrates not once, but twice. Jesus goes into the temple and flips tables and flings people out twice during his ministry. He does it first in John 2. And then three years later, he does it again, which is found in all the Gospels, specifically Luke 19 is the most detailed account of this. But Jesus is so angry that he flips tables and he throws people out. Now, here's the point. God's anger is part of his holiness. He is just. When he sees things that are wrong, that are sinful, it causes him a righteous anger. And we have inherited that. Now, the reality is that nine times out of ten, in fact, let me go above that, 99 times out of 100, our anger is selfishly motivated. But the idea of anger, the root cause, is the same in us as it is in God. It is seeing something, believing it to be unjust, and reacting Accordingly, And here the psalmist tells us that even our anger recognizes that God's anger is correct. We understand that God's fearsome nature is the right response to sin. Our internal understanding of who God is points to him being right. And that ought to lead us to fear. We ought to think like God does. Finally, the last thing the psalmist wants to share with us is about avoiding evil. Verse 12 says this, He shall cut off the spirit of the princes. He is terrible to the kings of the earth. Those who oppose God will be destroyed. Someone with proper fear wants to avoid that. Paul describes it this way in Romans 11, 20 and 21. Well, because of their unbelief, this talking about the Jews, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded or proud, but fear, for if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. In other words, avoid evil. Fear should motivate you not just to obey, not just to think like God, because he's right, but it should motivate you to avoid. Let's illustrate this again with lightning. This is the Maracaibo River in Venezuela. This is the most lightning-struck area on planet Earth. It has 1.6 million lightning strikes per year. 
The entirety of Oakland County, which is actually significantly larger than this area in Venezuela, only has about 50,000 lightning strikes per year. In fact, interestingly enough, this is a pleasing piece of geographic knowledge, the mouth of the Maracaibo River is about the same size as Wixom is, which means that I can directly compare the number of lightning strikes Wixom has to Maracaibo River. We have 576 lightning strikes per year, in case you wanted to know, according to the government. Which means that if you went to the Maracaibo River, you would be 2,777 times more likely to get hit by lightning than you are right here. Now, here's the point. If you don't want to get hit by lightning, don't go to the Maracaibo River. If you don't want to sin, avoid evil. If you don't want to experience God's fearsome nature, stay away from the things that he dislikes. So if we fear God, what then? If we are motivated to obey, if we are motivated to think like God thinks, if we are motivated to avoid evil, what should that lead us to do? Well, first of all, it ought to lead us to ask a question. Can I do these things? And the answer to that is yes, because of Jesus. You see, the problem with fearing God before Jesus is no matter how much you wanted to do right, you couldn't do right. And no matter how much you wanted to avoid evil, you couldn't avoid evil. Your flesh constantly, as Paul tells us, led you to doing the things opposite of what you wanted to do. But because of Jesus, because of what he did for you, it is now possible for you to please God by acting rightly. It's possible to think like God and it's possible to avoid evil. So the first thing is fear of God ought to motivate us to act in the right way. God is powerful. He can do great and terrible things, but because of Jesus, we can avoid those things. So it ought to motivate us. A fear of God ought to motivate us to believe. Secondly, it ought to motivate us to obey, because if you believe, then you should do what God says. Think how God thinks and avoid what God does not like. This is really a simple version of what sanctification is. The fear of God actually motivates us to live more and more like Jesus Christ. And Paul is very clear about this. He talks about this in nearly every book he writes. If you fear God, you're going to act right and stop acting wrong. But here's the cool thing. The fear of God doesn't just motivate ourselves. It actually motivates us when it comes to our interaction with others. And again, Paul shares this with us. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing therefore the terror or the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So Paul and his followers, or, or the men with him in this particular book, because of their fear of God, they actually are motivated not only to act right themselves, but they are motivated to share the gospel, evangelize. Because if God really is who he says he is, if he is as fearsome as the psalmist in Psalm 76 says he is, then we don't want that wrath on ourselves, and we also don't want that wrath on those around us. We want to avoid not only our own punishment, but we want to help others avoid their punishment through Jesus Christ. By the way, as twisted as this might sound, this was actually the reason that the Romans persecuted the Christians. The Romans were afraid that the Christians, by failing to worship their false gods, the Romans' false gods, they were actually bringing wrath down on the entire empire. And so out of fear for their gods, the Romans tried to get the Christians to act right. And they started, by the way, not by killing them, but by trying to get them to worship the Roman gods. Now, again, the Romans were completely wrong on this, but there is a lesson to be learned that if you fear God, 
If you want what he wants, obey him and want to avoid evil, you'll want to share that with others. This is also true not only of evangelism, but discipleship. If you have a healthy fear of God, those that are already Christ followers that you know, you want to encourage them to have a proper fear as well. And again, according to Paul many times, this is sanctification, which is discipleship. It's coming along someone, teaching them how to obey God, how to think like God, how to avoid evil. Fear of God motivates discipleship. Finally, there's one last really positive application of the fear of God. The fear of God ought to remind us that we win through him. Because God is fearsome. God is powerful. He's unstoppable. He's strong. And the book of Revelation tells us that he wins and destroys and defeats his enemies. But here's the good news. Following behind him are his followers. So yes, God is fearsome. Yes, the fear of God ought to motivate us to act right. But if we are a follower of Jesus Christ, we don't have to be scared of God because we are on God's side. And the fearsome God that we serve, he will win. And because of Jesus, the crazy and unbelievable thing is that he is going to share that with us. He is going to treat us like sons, like Jesus, because Jesus died for us and he has offered his righteousness for us to take up, to protect us from God's fear, to protect us from God's wrath and instead put us on the winning side with our fearsome God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to study your word today. Help us to meditate on what it means to properly fear you, to obey you, to think like you, to avoid evil. Lord, help us to balance this truth of Scripture with the other truths about you. Lord, help us to hold all of your attributes together in our mind so that we can correctly worship you, so we can correctly teach others about you. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning around your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you for watching this video of one of our recent services. It's a pleasure for us to have you join us from a distance and join our church in a time of worship around the word of God. The most important message that we can tell you is that God loves you. He loves you so much that he gave Jesus Christ as payment for your sins. The Bible says that all that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. We want you to know that message that true life is found in Jesus Christ. An eternal life, the opportunity to live with God.